All right, Jabal said, let's begin. Good morning. Let's begin. Today's daf is daf Chof Aleph. We are going to begin on Chof Amud Beis. So if you remember again, we left off. We actually left off a little, a little bit up. Um, we left off Minayin Lekoim Godel. Two, four, six, eight, nine lines up from the bottom. So the Gemara says Minayin Lekoim Godel Shemis Velomino Achat Tachtov Shetehe Min Chasok Kreva Mishal Yarshim. How do we know that in the event that the Kohen Godel died, and let's say they did not go ahead? And appoint a new Kohen Gadol in his stead yet. Meaning, let's say, for whatever, whatever the Metzius is, let's say you have a reason where, for some reason, there was not a standing Kohen Gadol. So, say, so we know that the Kohen Gadol's special Mincha offering still had to be offered. So the Gemara suggests now, how do we know that we would take the funds, we would get the funds for that carbon from the Yarshim, from the inheritors of the Kohen Gadol? Tamalomar mi banov ye ase osa. So the Torah says that ultimately from his children you will do it. So the Gemara says, Yachol yivi emelechatsayim. So Moshe, as you pointed out yesterday, if you remember, the Kohen's, the Kohen Gadol's mincha was split up into two parts. And remember, we saw the Machlokes, Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Mishum and Lakish in terms of how you sanctify it. Do you, do you sanctify it all at once in the morning and then divide it up into two parts? Or do you sanctify as needed? But everyone agreed that at the end of the day, you would offer it up in two parts, one in the morning, one in the, in the, in the afternoon. So now the Gemara says, you might have thought that you would do the same thing even in the absence of the Kohen Gadol. Talmud Lomar Osa Kula Amarti Di Rabbi Yehuda. So Bosa, therefore the Torah says you will offer it. The only time you split it up is when there's an acting Kohen Gadol. But if there's no acting Kohen Gadol, you offer it all up at once. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Shimon Omer, Eino Ba'a El Mishal Rabbi Shimon says, no. Going back to the original point, if there's no Kohen Gadol, we don't get the funds for this special Mincha from his office, from his Yarshim, from his inheritors. Rather, it comes from communal funds. Shne'emar, chok olam. Because the Torah says, ultimately, the Torah uses the phrase, chok olam. It lit- we, we, now we translate, and translate, we translate that as an everlasting statute. But interestingly enough, we'll see the way the Gemara understands it. Chok olam, mimi shabris krusa lo. The chok olam comes from the, literally from the one whose covenant is eternal. Now, I'll say, take a look. At the Karbanaida. So the Karbanaida is on the right hand side of the page, towards the end of the Karbanaida, the last couple of lines. So interestingly enough, the way the Gemara's understanding is the following. The Torah says, Chak Olam, it'll be an everlasting statute. So the Gemara is saying that the money, the Gemara is dashing, that the money for the Karban comes from that which is eternal. What is that which is eternal? HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So what does that mean? The money comes from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The money comes from monies that were pledged to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which refers again to the communal funds of Trumas HaLishka. Okay. So the Gemara goes back to the Gemara. says, Khalil Taktar. So the Gemara says, you shall go ahead and literally Khalil Taktar means that you'll offer it up and it'll be totally burnt. So the Gemara says, Khalil Lahaktara. We learn from here that the entirety of this offering is burnt. Look at the Karbana Ida again. Khalil Lahaktara. Shalom Yasu Imenu Shraim Lahila. 
The Torah says, as opposed to other types of minachos, where there is, you know, we know, for example, by the classic mincha, only a kamitza is offered up and the rest is consumed. When it comes to the mincha of the Kohen Gadol, there is no shirayim. There's nothing left over. There's nothing to be consumed. Everything is burnt. Fine. Kohen Gadol Shemes. Says the Gemara, Rabbi Ba Bar Mamol Boi. He has the following kasha. It would appear that the position of Reb Shimon is switched around. Why? Taman Amar Mishal Yarshim. Bahacha Amar Mishal Tzibor. So we'll say, interestingly enough, in our Mishnah, so we'll say this is again, this case, the case of the Kohen Gadol, and there's not a case of the Kohen Gadol who died, there's not yet another appointed Kohen Gadol. The Kohanic Mincha, the, Ko- the Kohen Gadol Mincha has to be offered, and the Shaila is what? Who picks up the bill? So the Gemara says, it seems to be, uh, we, have, uh, uh, we have Rabbi Shimon, we have Rabbi Shimon contradicting himself. In our Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon says the money comes from the heirs of the deceased Kohen Gadol, and yet later on it says, Excuse me. In another in another mission, it says that it comes from the from the Yarshin, and here it says it comes from the Tzibor. This is a good kasha. So the Gemara answers: Really, the halacha is that mid the oraisa, it should come from communal funds. It should come from communal funds. So the Gemara says, we'll say skip the parentheses and go to the words after the parentheses. Hayisi Omer Gigvula. So I might have thought that Halokha Lamaisa, they should collect it from there. So I'm saying, we'll say, I'm, what that means is, I might have thought that once it's coming from communal funds, once it's coming from communal funds, they should do a special collection for it. Meaning, we'll say, go back to what we just said before. Now that we're using the drush of Chak Olam teaches us that it has to come from communal funds. So I might have thought that what does communal funds mean? We should do a special appeal. For the mincha of the Kohen Gadol. Let's do a special appeal. So the Gemara says, No. Ha'ayisi omer yigvula. Hiskinu, skip the parentheses again. Hiskinu shetehei ba'a mitrumas halishka. The rabbis instituted that we do not need to do a special appeal, but rather, again, we take these monies from the general fund. Rabbi Yosa omer Rabbi Yochanan. Boy. Mahu shalema shale, b'shachres u'shalema b'narbayim. So we'll say now, here's what we know. We know that before we said that although when the Kohen Gadol himself offers this mincha offering, he splits it up, and he does half in the morning, half in the afternoon. Now, what happens when we're offering it up in his absence? So do we offer it now? We just said before that we don't split it up. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we just offer it all up in the morning and nothing's done in the afternoon? Or does it mean that we offer a whole one in the morning and a whole one in the afternoon? So the Gemara says, so we'll say, the Gemara says, well, it would appear to be that the answer to that is quite simple, because the Torah itself says it should be a minchas tomid, which means I'll say now, tomid over here means morning and evening, and therefore it would appear that in the absence of the Kohen Gadol, we in fact bring a whole mincha, both in the morning as well as in the evening. Okay. Shloshes lugin mahin. So on one hand, what else do we do about the shloshes lugin? Now, I'll say, remember, there are three lugin of oil that are brought along with the mincha of the Kohen Gadol. So we'll say, now we're just trying to figure out the, the, the mechanics of it. How is it brought? So when you talk about these three lugin, mine, shloshes lugin shachrish, shloshes lugin ben arbayim, do we bring three lug in the morning and three lug in the afternoon? O lug umechza shachris, u lug umechza ben arbayim. Or do we bring one and a half lugin in the morning and one and a half lugin in the afternoon? Amrabi chizkiyah, uf. 
So the Gemara says, we must, so literally, this is also a good kasha. Right? This is also, meaning, now that you're asking this, let me bring in another question. What's the other question? Now, say, along with the coin Gadol's, along with the coin Gadol's mincha, there's also Kamitsin. Right? There are also, again, there are also these um, handfuls of, not well, called handfuls, of Levona. So what do you do about the Kamitsin of Levona? So the Gemara says, Shnei Kumtsin B'Shachris, Shnei Kumtsin Bein Ha'arbayim. Do you go ahead and bring two Kamitsos in the morning and two Kamitsos in the afternoon? Oh, Kometz Achas Shachris, for Kometz Achas Bein Ha'arbayim. Or do you simply bring one Kometz in the morning and one Kometz in the afternoon? Amar Rabbi Yosa, Klum Lamdu L'Kometz, Lobi Minchas Chofei. Have we not learned out the concept of Kometz from the Mincha, from the sinner's Mincha? Remember, we've spoken about this earlier. That there is a circumstance in which a person who normally would be liable to a chatos will bring will bring a mincha in cases of poverty where a person can't afford a regular animal for a chatos they can bring a carbon mincha so I'll say so that becomes the paradigm for minachos just like over there we bring two kamitos with every with every offering so to over here we'll bring two kamitos as well. Skip the parentheses. I'm Reb Chizkia. Oh, I'm sorry. Don't skip the parentheses. Ma Taman Tzvi Chalei. Afachat Tzvi Chalei. Just like over there, it's a good kasha. So to over here, it's a good kasha. I'm Reb Chizkia. Chlum Lomdu Shloshes Lugin Lomi Tamid Shalbein Ha'arbayim. Have we not learned out the three lug from Tamid Shalbein Ha'arbayim? Ma Lahalon Shloshes Lugin. Just like over there, you require three lugin by every offering. Afkan Shloshes Lugin. So to over here, there are three lugin. Ma Taman Tzvi Chalei. And just like over there, it was a kasha. Here too, it was a kasha. So say, what seems to come out from this sugya is that halachal said, Number one, in the this is all in the absence of the kohen gadol. In the absence of the kohen gadol, we will offer a complete, a complete asiris ha'efa in the morning, and a complete mincha in the afternoon. In the absence of the kohen gadol, we will go ahead and do one and a half lugin of oil in the morning, one and a half lugin of oil in the afternoon. When it comes to the kamitzos, it would appear that we'll do two kamitzos with each carbon mincha. Okay, so it says the Gemara, Shalom Yehiyah, Shalom Yehiyah. So, so if you remember again, one of the enactments that the Mishnah spoke about was that was that the ashes of the Para Aduma will not be subject to Meila. If you remember again, the Lashon over there was the Ala Para Shalom Yehiyu Moalin Beafra. That was actually. Yeah, let me rephrase that. The way the Mishnah reads is that when it comes to the Para Aduma that people should not commit me'ila with its ashes. Now, obviously, what does that mean? So the Gemara says, Rishim ben Nachman, Rishim Rabbi Yonasan. Bedinhu, meaning logically, logically, Bedinhu, sheyema'alu bahen. So we'll say, it would have appeared logical that the, that the ashes of the para aduma would go ahead and be subject to me'ila. Subject to me'ila. Take a look at the Kavana Eidah for just a moment. Kavana Eidah says, so we'll say, logically, we would have said that the ashes of the paraduma are in fact subject to the prohibition of meila. Remember, meila just means inappropriate use of, unco- of consecrated property. So the ashes of paraduma should be no different than any other sacrificial item that is subject to the laws of meila. But the rabbis went ahead and made a tonight. We'll say, now again, remember, when it comes to certain consecrated items, the rabbis have the right to regulate the levels of consecration. So the rabbis made a tonight, essentially a condition, that the ashes themselves of Paraduma are not consecrated. Okay? 
So Gemara says, but one second. Bahatani chatas, I. But the Torah uses the lashon of chatas by para aduma. And whenever the Torah uses the lashon of chatas, we learn from that. Melamid shemo alin ba. We learn that you go ahead, and it is subject to mila. Because we'll say again, <coughs> essentially, what chatas says is that this is a sacrificial item. Once it's a sacrificial item, it is subject to all the laws of mila. To which the Gemara says, oh, I'll tell you how to darshan that. Ba moalin. No, what it means is that para itself is subject. <coughs> To the laws of Meila, but its ashes are not subject to Meila. So I'll say, so the question, of course, is what's, going, I mean, what's, what's happening over here? So listen to this. I'm Rabbi Abou, Barishona, Hayu Mishtak Shikin Ba. In the beginning, they were Mishtak Shikin Ba. Now, what does that mean? Take again a look at the Karbana Eda. I don't want to play favorites in Tiklin Khanatins or the Karbana Eda. But I've, I've taken an affinity to the carbon haida. Also, because he's just much easier, because he's right by the Gemara. Right? If you notice that, meaning he's right by the side of the post, the Tiklin Charitin, which is always on a different part of the page, he's right here. So I'm not weighing in on this, <laughs> I'm not, but I'm just saying. Look at the carbon haida. So take a look over here. He says, You see in the carbon haida? He says, Mishtak Kishin Ba Ba'afra. It's very interesting. So what used to happen, people would take the ashes of the para aduma and they would use it to go ahead and use it like as a dressing for wounds. Apparently, again, it had some type of medicinal purposes as well. So people were using the ashes. They both say, obviously, this is secondary ashes because the, the, the real ashes of the para aduma, of course, I used to the para aduma, and those were a very, a very significant commodity. This must have been some leftover ash from something else involved with the paraduma. So people would go ahead and use it for medicinal purposes. So what happens? So what happens? The rabbi stepped in and the rabbi said that, oh, they, they didn't like this because, again, remember, the concern over here is what? That if they're using this now, what's going to happen? They may end up actively using other parts of the paraduma as well for inappropriate purposes. And therefore, the rabbis were goes there that you can't do it because if you do it, you're going to be in violation of mi'ilah, of inappropriate use of consecrated property. Of course, again, remember, remember, remember the, 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 the structure over here. Midda oraisa, can you use the ashes of paraduma? Midda oraisa? Yes. Why? Because the laws of mi'ilah only apply ba, only apply to the para itself and not to the ashes. Now the Gemara is saying the rabbis were goes that it is such a meal. Now the Gemara is explaining why. In the beginning, people used to use the ashes for their own personal reasons. Again, which are both like, technically is fine. When it became so widespread, Chazal became concerned that people may end up using other parts of the parts. So what happens? They made a takana. This is very interesting. Kevan shegazru, excuse me. Vigazru shimalaba. Kevan shenigzru. I'm sorry. Vigazru shimalaba. Kevan shenigzru. Gazru shaloyimalaba. I will say, literally translated, what this means is. And then once they were goes there, they were goes that there should be no mi'ilah. That, now, what does that mean? Look at the carbon ha'ida again. Kevin shegazru, kevin shenigzru, upershu misafek hazoos em nitmu besafek tomas ames, lo hayumazin alav shloyima aluba. So it's very interesting. So now, what ended up happening was two things. So two ways you could read this Gemara. Number one, the way you could read this Gemara is that their gezerah worked. People stopped using the ash, and therefore the rabbis took their gezero off. Meaning, the gezero was there to make people treat the paradigm with greater sanctity. It worked. So there was no need to keep it on the books if it worked. The carbonaida says something different. Carbonaida says, what, what ended up happening? Once they made the paradigm subject to me'ilah, then there was, people stopped using para'aduma. Now, what does it mean on both sides? 
if you think about this for just a moment, if, if you go ahead, a pardum is sanctified. So let's say now a person is not sure, did I come in contact with Tuma, did I not come in contact with Tuma? So we normally say, okay, just be sprinkled by the action of the paraduma out of suffolk. Here's the problem. If the paraduma is subject to the laws of Ne'ilah, if you are not Tomei and you get sprinkled by the ashes, then what? You have engaged in an act of Ne'ilah. So what ended up happening, says the Karbana Eida, people essentially were in a state of Suffolk Tuma, did nothing to rectify their circumstances. So such a fascinating idea. So on one hand, Chazal's desire to go ahead and rectify people's inappropriate use of the ash, or what they felt to be potential inappropriate use of the ash, actually had another negative unintended consequence that people stopped using the para aduma altogether. So what ended up happening? So Chazal felt they had to repeal their takana, repeal their takana, because the truth is, even if people end up using the ash, remember, that's not real mi'ilah. So we don't want people using the ash, but even, but, so better to have people potentially do something that we don't like so much, but is not halachically problematic, than to go ahead and what? Make a zero that's going to prevent people from using the para altogether. That's why the Mishnah says, they originally said that Lamai said, will be subject to the to mi'ilah, and then they repealed the rabbinic mi'ilah prohibition to put it back to where it was, and therefore encourage people to do para duma properly. So more goes back to Valakinin. So we'll see if you remember again, the Mishnah spoke about the idea, actually, Machlokas, of what happens in the, in the bird offerings. Let's say it turns out that, remember, one of the offerings was invalid. was invalid. So the Shaila is now they had to replace it, because remember, again, somebody contributed money towards a proper bird, a proper bird carbon. So what do you do in the event that the carbon itself is invalid? So we had a Machlokas in the Mishnah. Rabbi Yossi says, excuse me, Tanakama said, that it comes from Michel Tzibor. Communal funds replaced the puzzle bird. And Rabbi Yossi says, who does it come from? It comes from the, the bird supplier. It comes from the guy who ultimately had the bird contract with the Beis Hamikdash. He agreed to go ahead and make up for any losses. So says the Gemara. Says the Gemara ba'alakinin. So we actually had this Gemara two days ago. Ha'isha hazos bemahi miskapes. Well, so if you remember again this case, this was the case of the money that was found merza al merza between the kinin and the olos, between the, the chatas bird offerings and between the Ola bird offerings. So what did we do if it's Mechza, Mechza? Remember, where does it go? Mechza, Mechza, between the Kinan and the Olos? Olos. O- Olos, good. It goes to the Olos. Why? Shkoyach. You could have texted that into me. You could, uh, so uh, so, so it, go, it, goes, it goes to the Olos. It goes to the Olos. Why? Because the Olos are more Hummer. Because remember, again, the Olos ultimately are totally consumed on the Mizbeach. Remember, the Gemara there asked, that's very nice, but what do you do about the fact... Now, remember, I will say, we don't know... That doesn't tell us that the money's actually from the Olo's pot. All it tells us is that we have a doubt. And when we have a doubt, especially when it comes to biblical items, we resolve it stringently. That's all it tells us. But what happens if the money was originally from what? Was really from the chatos. Meaning, what, let's say, again, a woman was there that day. She had a baby, or, uh, or she was a zava, and she had to bring the, the chatos bird offering, and she put money in there, and now her carbon is not going to be offered. Someone says, what do, you, what do you do about that? So that's the thing we're saying over here. Ha'isha hazos, this woman, meaning let's say we have to entertain the possibility that the money found mechza mechza does in fact belong to the chatos pot. So ha'isha hazos, b'mahi miskaperes. What is she going to do? How is she going to be atoned? So Bisak says no, because it was part of the condition of the person who supplied the birds that Rabosai, whenever there was a psul, 
Let's say whenever they shechted one of the birds and it turns out the bird was a tray for something, or ovdos, or when something was lost. For example, the case of where the coin of Mechza Mechza, that's a case of being lost. In all of those cases, the person who undertook, the, the person who had the contract for the birds would undertake replacement of all these kinds of items. That's how he answered that Gemara over there. So Gemara said, in that case of Mechza Mechza, as much as the money is going to go into the Ola pot, but we are going to go to the bird supplier and ask him for another, for another pair of chatas birds to offer them up just in case. Just in case. So we'll say, since that's how the Gemara Paskins, that at the end of the day, in these kind of cases, where something happened to one of the bird offerings, either it was lost or it was puzzle, the person who had the bird contract was responsible for all replacements. Hadron Allah, Moz Shinimtsu. Bishna. Kol Harokin Hanim Sanbiyushayim Tehorin. I will say, in general, if you find saliva, if you find saliva, so I'll say, understand that these halachos sound a little bit strange to us um, because we're not, in this time, we're not careful with the laws of ritual purity of Tumantara. But obviously, in the days of the of Tumantara, a person has to be vigilant of, of everything. So what happens? So a person goes ahead and finds saliva, or a person comes in contact with saliva. So the Gemara says that any saliva found, any saliva found in Yushanai is considered to be tar. Chutz, Mishal Shukha Elyon, with the exception of saliva found in the upper marketplace. So we'll discuss exactly, we'll discuss exactly what it is that uh, what it is that, that means. Take a look at our website the Karmana Ada for just a moment. <coughs> On the left hand side, So we'll say, what's the concern? The concern is there are certain types of tumor that could be conveyed through saliva. Which we'll say is just a very interesting idea. You know, that if let's say you know, it, well, yeah, it could be a very interesting idea in terms of transmission of tuma. So, if let's say again, if you have a tum, if you have the saliva of a zav, so that can literally convey tumas zivos. See, he says shehein metamet adam mekelim mishum da'azlinar basa ruba. So, I will say the, what the Mishnah is saying is, we make an assumption that the majority of people in Yerushalayim are tar. Artar. Now, why do we make that assumption? Why do we know? Do we say it about Tel Aviv or anywhere else? And the answer is no. Why do we say it about Yerushalayim? Because of proximity to the base of Mikdash. That's what we assume. Majority of Yerushalayim are therefore Tahorin. Therefore, any saliva that's found, we go after the robe, and therefore again Tahorin. Right? We'll, we'll discuss about the upper marketplace in, in the Gemara. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi says, Sashana during the rest of the year. Now, I will say we will see during the rest of the year means during the non, not during the Regalim. That's what it means. During the non-regalim part of the year, if you find saliva in the middle of the road, then then temein, that saliva is tamei. If you find saliva on the side of the road, tahorin, then it's tar. So we'll say, look at the cover of Eidah again. So also listen to this. So apparently the way it used to work says, Rabbi Yossi is the following. During the non-regalim times, so there'd be a lot of people Tameim, and in fact it could even be a large number. And the Tameim, they could walk wherever they want. So what would they do? They would often walk in the middle of the road, and what would happen? The people who were Tahorin, they would go by the sides. They would stay off to the sides so as to avoid, so as to avoid Tumah, and they would tell the Tameim people, please stay away from me, because ultimately, I'm tahar. So therefore, again, any, any, any saliva found in the middle of the road during the, during the regular part of the year is considered to be tameh. On the sides of the road is tar. But during the regalim, 
if you find spittle in the middle of the road, if you find saliva in the middle of the road, then what? Then it's tar, shebet studded to me. But on the side, it's not wireable, say, because during the regalin, who's the dominant force? The tahorin. So the tahorin get to walk in the middle of the street, and the tenayim, they are relegated to the sides of the road. Mipnei shahamiutin nistalkin litstadin. Because generally, the people in the minority will travel by the side of the road. So we'll say again, so whereas Rabbi Yehuda, whereas Rabbi Meir holds that Yerushalayim is always considered to be in a state of rov tara, Rabbi Yossi says, not true. The rov tara status is only, is only implied during regalim, or is only assumed during regalim, but during the rest of the day, we actually assume a rov tumah. And interesting enough, he actually assumes more of like a geographic reality. Mm-hmm. Middle of the road will be tamay, side of the road will be tar. Similarly, if you find utensils in Yerushalayim, so what? So we'll say the shaila is what? What's the status of the kli? Is the kli considered to be tar? Considered to be tar? It's a very interesting explanation. If you find it on the way down to the mikvah, then it's tameh. If you find it on the way up, tahorin, it's tar. Because the way that you went down is not the way that you went up. David Rabbi Meir, these are the words of Rabbi Meir. So we'll say, Rabbi Meir says that the mikvahs were constructed, that you did not go in and out the same way. We'll say, it's actually interesting. If you, if you ever go, in Eretz Yisrael, by the southern wall excavations, by the, by, not by the Kotel, so they have, they actually unearth a whole number of these mikvahs. And what's amazing they found with all these mikvahs is there are two sets of stairs. There are two sets of stairs. There's one in and there's one out. Also because, remember, it's not like mikvah like today. This was like assembly line mikvos, right? You took off your clothes, you went in, you went out, you came out the other side, and boom. Because remember, just think about sheer volume, sheer number of people that had to go to the mikvah prior to coming into the base of mikdash. So it's like, so therefore, the Gemara is saying, if you find it on the way down, then you assume that it's coming because it's being taken down to the mikvah. Coming up, you assume that it's already tahar. Rabbi Yossi says, Kulantar, no, we assume that all Kalim in Yerushalayim are all Tahorim. Are all Tahorim. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at the if you look at the Karbana he says, Rabbi Yudomar Kulan Tahorim, the Logazru al Safek Kalim Yerushalayim. Because Rabbi Yossi is of the opinion that in Yerushalayim they were not Gozer on Safek Kalim. That all Safek Kalim Yerushalayim are Tahorim. Alright, we'll see why that is. Chutz, with a couple of exceptions. Min Hasal, a sal is a basket. Magrefa is a shovel. And Maritza is a hammer. Hamiyuchadin likvaros. Why are both signed? Because these were all utensils that were set aside, that were specifically used for for either for either grave for either grave transfers, like moving bones from one place to another. That's the basket, or from act, for actually digging graves, like a shovel and hammer. We'll see the shovel was used to, to move dirt. The hammer was used to break apart rock. So according to Abiyos says these kelim, if you find them, we assume they're tamei because we assume that they're used for for the creation of graves. Right, Rabbi Yossi is going to take us back to our Pesachim days. Sakin shenimtzeis biyadalid. Remember this? So, right, let's say you find a knife on the 14th of Nisan. So, Rabbi the shayla is now, what's the status of the knife? So, the Gemara says, shochid bamiyad. You could shecht with it immediately. Why? Because since it's Arab Pesach, and we assume that what? That people made sure that their knives are in a state of ritual purity. Okay? But if you find it on the 13th, you have to tovel it again before using it. Why did say? Because the 13th, we assume people don't yet have their kalim in a state of ritual purity. Kofitz, I will say kofitz is like um, a cleaver. A cleaver, right? All right. And I guess that's the right word for it. Like, uh, like uh, yeah, a cleaver. So I'll say, remember, a kofitz would not be used for carbon Pesach. Why? Because remember, kofitz was used to break apart bones. 
you can't break apart bones in the carbon Pesach. But kofits could have been used for the carbon Chagiga. For the carbon Chagiga, for the Shlamim. So the Gemara says, what happens if you find the kofits? Whether you find the kofits on the 13th or the 14th, you would have to total it again before using it. Because again, there's no reason to assume that people would have prepared their kofits for use. Because you can't use kofits at Pesach. What happens if the 14th falls down on Shabbos? Then Rabbi say, and now you find, and now you find the knife. Shochet ba miyat. So we'll say, listen to this. Now, there's an interesting discussion as to what this is talking about. So the Kabbalah suggests that, again, this is talking about the kofits. Right there, if you find the kofits on the 14th, which is Shabbos, you can go ahead and use it for shechita immediately. Immediately. Because, again, you could assume that, even though, again, you're not going to be shechting anything with the kofits on Shabbos. Because, remember, the only thing you can do on Shabbos is the Karim Pesach itself. It's Karim Pesach itself. But it's talking about the Shlamim as well. So if you look at the last two lines of the Karim Ha'edah, he says, V'yesh mefarshim, shochit ba'miyad b'kofits ka'amar. Suggesting over here that when Erev Shabbos, when Erev Pesach falls out on Shabbos, we also assume that people took care of their kofits before Shabbos as well. Amud Beis, Betesvav, Betesvav, Shochet Ba Miyad. Look at the Karmana Ida again, and on the fifteenth, you could check with it immediately. But also, this is referring to over here the Fishakala Am Yodin Shaza Utvila Asrin Biyom Tov. So we'll say, if you find these items on the 15th, 15th already is Yom Tov. Remember, you could shaft on Yom Tov. So if you find it on Yom Tov, we assume that everything is going to be tarred by Yom Tov. Because remember, you can't go ahead and purify things on Yom Tov. Okay. Nimtzeh is kshur l'sakin. What happens if you find the, what happens if you find the kofits tied to a knife? We'll say, this is all, we have this all in Pesachim. Let's say you find the kofits tied to the knife. Harihu kisakin. The kofits then has the same status as that, meaning since they're tied together, we assume that they were treated the same way. Rabbi Avin Bishim Rabbi Yeshoban Levi. So I'll say this and this. Remember, let's go back for just a moment. Remember again, the first case in the Mishnah was that in general, if you find saliva in Yerushalayim, the Rabbi Meir said that Lemaisa, everything is considered to be tahor, with the exception of any kind of saliva found in the upper, in the upper shuk. So what was special about the upper shuk? So the Gemara says, there was literally a Gentile launderer who used to live up there. Now, I I remember, there's a, general, there's a general rabbinic prohibition that the saliva of Nochrim has the status of the saliva of a Zav. Saliva of a Zav. Now, I said that was done for a variety of reasons, most notably in order to maintain certain distances between Jew and Gentile. So therefore the Gemara, see that's why the Gemara singles out this upper, this upper marketplace, because the Maisa, there was a non-Jewish launderer there. Take a look at the Karbana Eda for just a moment. So that's why, again, any saliva found in the upper marketplace, one has to be concerned that it belonged to these, to these Gentile launderers, and therefore, again, it would be Tome. So the Gemara says, Amr I'm sorry? Were they the majority there? They must have been the majority up there. They must have been the majority up there. If not, you'd be cool. Yeah, and the Shukha Elyon must have been the majority. So the Mara said, Amra Bichanina, Arudos Hayu Nochim Biyushalayim. Well, said there were what? There were, remember, this is one specific marketplace. This is not saying upper Yushalayim. This is one specific marketplace where they must have been the majority of people. So the Mara says, Amra Bichanina, Arudos Hayu Nochim Biyushalayim. They used to, literally, most of what this literally means is, they used to spear wild donkeys in Yerushalayim. Now, Rebbe said, what, why are they spearing wild donkeys? Take a look at, take a look at the Karbala Eid again. Arudos, 
Arudi Hayar, wild donkeys, Hayunochrin Lutzorach Arios Shalmelech. So I'll say what they used to do is, I guess you feed wild donkeys to lions. So what they used to do is they used to slaughter these wild donkeys in the in Yerushalayim to feed them to the king's lions. So what happened? Sumer so says, as a result, so say apparently there were times when they were slaughtering a lot of these donkeys and the Jewish people who were there, the Oli Regalim, would be walking up to their knees in blood. Right? They were slaughtering so many... And now this could be a little bit of hyperbole. What it's saying over here is that Lemaisa, everybody was getting smeared with this blood. They were, they were slaughtering these animals all over the place. So the Oli Regalim, who are obviously there for the regal to offer up their carbonos, were coming in contact with this uh, wild donkey blood. So the Gemara says, so now the Shiloh was what, Rabosai? The Shiloh was what impact, if any, does this have on their personal, on their state of personal tumantara? And the rabbis didn't say anything to them. Rabosai, the fact that the rabbis didn't say anything to them indicates that what? That apparently coming in contact with this wild donkey blood did not pose a problem. So I was going to say, why, why is that? So the Gemara says, I'll tell you, Rabbi Simon Bishim Rabbi Yoshua Ben Levi, Maisa, there was an episode with the mule of, from the home of Rebbe, Shemesa, who died, and they literally, they said that its blood was not problematic because of Nevela. And I will say, what does this mean? Now remember, we know, we know, we actually had this a little bit earlier, but we know that Lemaisa, a Nevela, carcass, has the ability to, to transmit tumor. The shail is, what about the blood of a Nevela? Is the blood of Nevela, like, remember we had the sugya earlier, is the blood of Nevela like Nevela itself? So the Gemara suggests the answer to that is no. And that's why, again, when the pilgrims were coming up, right, when the Oli Regal were coming up, and they're up to their knees in uh, wild donkey blood, the rabbis didn't say anything. Why? Because Lemaisa, again, because Lemaisa, the blood of a Nevela does not transmit tumor. So when the donkey, when the, when the mule of Rebbe's house dies, they ruled the blood does not transmit any level of Toma. So the Gemara says, listen to this, Sha'ol Rebbe Simon. So, excuse me, Rebbe Eliezer, Sha'ol Rebbe Simon. So Rebbe Eliezer asked Rebbe Simon, Ad Kama, Ad Kama. Now we'll say, Ad Kama means how much blood? So now, we've, it was just, this is really just a repeat of the thing we had before. So now that we're saying is that blood of a Nevela does not transmit Nevela Toma, how much blood are we talking? Is it any amount of blood? Is it only blood up to a certain shear that doesn't convey Toma, but more than that would convey Toma? So the Gemara says, below, below, Agive. And he didn't, Rabbi Simon didn't pay any attention to Rabbi Eliezer. Okay. Sha'ol le Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. He went to Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi and he asked him, Amrle ad tar, yosemikan tome. So Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said, no, it's, the dispensation is only up to a Rabbiyas of blood. But more than a revius of blood would in fact convey Toma. Because most remember we had the Shita before that up to a revius, up there once you get to a revius, the revius of blood is like what is like the Gizayas of an Avela. Okay. Uba'ash, Uba'ash the Rabbi Lazar, the Lochazar lay Rabbi Simon Shmuasa. And Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar, was very upset, was very offended that Rabbi Simon didn't answer him. Right, I mean, I asked you a question. All right, you want to tell me it's a stupid question. You want to tell me, acknowledge the fact that I asked you a question. I'll say also something very interesting, which is, as you've seen already, Yerushalmi has like a lot more of this emotion 
in the interchanges than Bavli does. They're Israeli. You know what I'm saying? You know, they're Israeli. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's very, no, there is, it's very interesting to see because we've seen already this type of dynamic where people ask each other questions and this one didn't answer that one and this one got all offended. You, you, don't, you don't really see that. They don't you really see that in the Bavli. It's just very interesting. So what happens? So Rabbi Lazer, Rabbi Lazer, who is Rabbi Eliezer, gets very upset that Rabbi Simon didn't answer him. Rabbivi Hava Yosef Masni Hadein Uvda. So Rabbivi, Rabbivi was sitting, and he was going over this particular, he was talking about this particular case. I will say this case of the mule of Rabbi that died, and they weren't going to tell me the blood. Amali Rabbi Yitzchak Barbisna, Ad Kama. So Rabbi Yitzchak Barbisna said, until how much, meaning how much blood doesn't convey to him. Amalei, Ad Revius Tahar Yosemi Kantame. And he said, maybe, could it be that until a Revius is tar, but more than that is Tame? But I will say again, means again, Rabbi didn't respond. So you have Rabbi Yitzchak Bar Bisna asking this question, and Rabbi doesn't respond. Amrali Rabbi Zreika, begin to have a at Ba'atbe. So Rabbi Zreika says, Rabbi, Rabbi, what's your problem? Right here, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Bar, excuse me, Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Bar Bisna asked you, Rabbi, a question. And why won't you answer him? I'm really begin the law. So what? So what is? So what does Ravivi answer? So again, so just to get the name straight, Ravivi is sitting relating this teaching. Ravi Yitzchak asks him on the teaching. I understand blood does not convey nevelatuma. How much blood? How much blood? And what happens? And Ravivi doesn't answer. Rav Zrika then says to Ravivi, essentially, what's your problem? Why aren't you answering, Rav Yitzchak Barbisna? So what does Ravivi answer? Amrlei, Amrlei. Begin I'm not ignoring him. I'm just really not able to concentrate. Why am I not able to concentrate? Well, it's a very profound gemara. We've had this before. So what does the Torah say? Well, say this is about the tokacha. So the Torah says literally, you were, you will have your life will be suspended in front of you. Now, what does it mean? Your life will be suspended in front of you. What does this refer to? Said, this refers to someone who does not who, who does not grow his own grain, and he purchases grains from a merchant, and he purchases enough for a year. So I say, you, you see, it's very different for us to, to think about this because we think about as a buying food for a year. Mamish, who does? So you have to understand something that in the agricultural society, you often bought staples for a long time. But what's the issue? The issue is, it's very nice that you're settled for a year, but what? But what? You don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Mm-hmm. Right? What's going to happen after the year? So it's very nice that I've secured for myself produce now. But remember, we'll say that was the chap of land. When you had land, land was your security. You knew that you'd be able to hopefully produce something. If you are dependent on others for your produce, even though you're getting a year's worth of wheat right now, literally, it's a very profound statement. It's like your life is suspended. You, you have no surety. You have no security. Mm-hmm. Now, also remember, the Pasuk goes in a progression. You will be scared night and day. What is that? This refers to someone who buys his wheat from a merchant. So when you buy wheat from a merchant, you buy it in much smaller quantities. The notion of constantly buying your food as needed was even a more fundamental lack of security. And you will not even believe in your life. You will not believe in your life. Meaning you won't believe that you'll be able to make it through the day. That refers to someone who has to buy his daily bread from the baker. So you will say, you see the progression. First, you begin with someone who, again, is only able to secure a year of sustenance. So that already makes me unsure. The next level of intensity is I buy in small quantities. 
and the greatest level of, in, of, 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 of intensity, which leads to the most, the lack, the, the, I should say the greatest lack of security in life, is someone who literally has to buy his daily bread from the baker. So the Gemara says, Ve'ana and Rabbi said, I rely on the baker. So I'll say it's very profound, because also what it's saying is, and this is, we know this to be very true, is that when a person struggles with parnosa, it impacts every aspect of their life. It's not just the pshat that, you know, I'm not making enough money or I'm struggling, and, but everything else is fine. Everything else may be fine, but I have a wonderful family, I might have my health, I might have all those things, but the lack of financial security colors the way a person sees the world. So, so the kind of profound this is. So Rabbi says, you have to understand, I am not ignoring Rabbi Yitzchak Bisna. I'm not ignoring him. But you have to understand, so that even though I'm here in the base of Medrash, my mind is very preoccupied. I'm a very, I'm a very nervous, I'm very distracted, because at the end of the day, my parnasa is not secure. Very profound. So the Gemara goes weiter. The Gemara says, so the Gemara says, my kiddo, heyid Rabbi Yoshua ben Pesura, so I will say, so now, okay, so now what's the sh- so now what's the halacha? Here's, here's what we've established. We've established that Lamaisa again, that we have, we have the, it seems to be that the blood of an Avela does not transmit Tuma. The only variable is what? How much? So the Marcus Maikidon, so what's, what's the resolution? Hey, Rabbi Yoshua ben Pesora, Adam Nevelos Shehutar. So Rabbi Yoshua ben Pesora said that Dam Nevelos is tar. Totally tar. Okay. So the Gemara says, so take a look. Um... Okay, don't take a look. Okay, fine. So, Danabel Shutar, Mait Mautar, Tahar Melahachshir. So, what does it mean that it's Tahar? Maybe Tahar means we'll say that it can't go ahead and make something else Hukshulatum. We know that in order for an item to be Makabaltuma, the object itself has to first come in contact with a liquid. Not every liquid is Machshir, an item for Tuma. Maybe what it means when we say that the blood of Nevela is Tahar, that it can't make something else Hukshulatum. Ha litamos mitame, but maybe it does in fact go ahead and make something else tame. Taman tanina, we learn later on. Dam hasheretz mitame kibsoro. We learned later on that the blood of a sheretz, in fact, convey is able to make something tame, just like the flesh of a sheretz makes something tame. So the Gemara says mitame ve'enomachshir. We see from here that what it's able to convey tuma, but it cannot be machshir something to be makabel tuma. And we have nothing else like this. Now I will say, when the Gemara says we have nothing else like this, what does that make it sound like? It makes it sound like it's only the blood of a Sheretz that has the ability to convey Tumah, but the blood of other things does not have the ability to convey Tumah. So the Gemara says, no, no, no. We'll say, no, no, what it means is there's nothing else like Sheretz where even a very small amount of blood can convey Tumah. Just like we'll say, even if a Sheretz itself is very small, the flesh of the sheretz conveys tuma, even if the sheretz is very small. So too, the blood of a sheretz also conveys tuma in very small quantity. But lemaisa, but lemaisa, the fact that other items, their blood does convey tuma like their flesh as well. Amrabiosi pligi ba tre amuroin. We have machlogis amuroin. Chad amar tamei v'chad amar tar. One said that the blood of an avela is tamei, and one said that it is tar. To which the gemara says, man da amar tai the one who says that it's Tommy's like Rabbi Huda, Oman Dermot like Rabbi Yoshua ben Psora, and the one who says that it's like Rabbi Yoshua ben Psora, Amrali Rav Avduma de Minuchusa, the Yaos de Rabbi Yehuda Moraina de Benesia Hava. And this is true because Rabbi Huda was the posek, Rabbi Huda was the posek of 
the house of the Nasi. So also what comes out according to this, you should just know, is that Dan Nevela, still we're left with this Machlokas, as to whether or not Dan Nevela actually conveys Tumah or not. And if, it can, and if you do say it conveys Tumah, then the Shaila is in what shear? In what shear? Is it only from a Ravius and above? Or is it even... Or is it even in the amount of a small amount like like the like the like the sheretz? That's the fundamental machlokis. Well, so you should just know that Lamas, you could see over here already. You could see over here. Um, you could see over here that Lamaisa, that Dan Nevelos, Dan Nevelos. Is actually that's where the Rambam is that Dam Nevelos is tahor, up until the amount of a revius. Once it gets to the amount of a revius, then Allah Lamaisa revius of Dam has the status of a kizayis of Basar, and therefore will ultimately convey Toma. So says the Gemara. Lokein Amar Rabbi Avol B'shem Rabbi Excuse me, Kala Rokin. All of different salivas. Lokein Amar Rabbi Avol B'shem Rabbi Yosi Ben Chanino. Lo Gazra Ala Rokin Shibur Shalayim. Ha Itmar Alei Rabbi Avin B'shem Rabbi Shimon Levi. So we'll say again, the Gemara is just saying over here that although the Mishnah began with the statement that all of the saliva in Yerushalayim is considered to be tahar, so the Gemara just points out over here that that with the exception of Rabbi Shomal Levi said that there was a the marketplace, like we said before, up the upper marketplace where there was the Gentile launderer. So the Gemara says, hashana hatnein mahalchim sheep siboles. Or shibolas, during the rest of the year, so the Tanayan would walk in Shibolas means in the middle of the street, and the Tahorin would walk on the side. And what happens? And the Tanayim, the Tahorin would walk regularly. And what would happen? And the Tanayim would say, move aside. So we'll say again, what it's saying is during the during the regular part of the year, the Tanayan were the majority were the majority. Therefore, they walked in the middle of the road. And they were also the ones who told the Tahorin, you guys get out of the way if you don't want to become Tomei. Bishas HaRegel, in times of the Regal, this, this is what we just read in the Mishnah. HaTahorin Mahalchim Shiboles, the Tahorin walked in the middle of the street. Vatamein Mahalchim Minat Sad, and the Tamein walked on the side. Vatamein Mahalchim Stam, and the Tamein walked normally. Vatahorin Omer Lehem Peroshu, and the Tahorin are the ones who told them, move out of the way. So what Odigmar is reflecting over here is that essentially the dominant group always got to walk in the middle of the street. And there was a dominant group that would shoo away the other, the other, the other uh, minority group. Thank you. So the Gemara says the following: So most again, if you remember the man, the Mishnah said that Machlokes actually in the Mishnah actually not a Machlokes. The Rabbi Yossi said that when you find when you find Kalim in your actually was a Machlokes. If you find Kalim in your Shalayim, what's the status of them? So Rabbi Meir wanted to suggest if you find them going down to the mikvah, they're tummy. You find them coming up from the mikvah. There, Tahar Rabbi Yossi said, in general, Kalim are Tahorim, with the exception of Kalim that are used for digging graves. So the Gemara says, Lo Kain Am Rabbi Avo, B'Shim Rabbi Yochanan, Lo Gazru Ala Kalim Shibu Shalayim, Mikeban Shenintu Derech Yerida Labes Hatvila, Naasu Hochiach. So Rabbi Avo says, Name Rabbi Yochanan, that with Kalim, when it comes to Yerushalayim, if they were found on the way down to the mikvah, Naasu Hochiach. Naasu Hochiach means that's absolute proof that they are that they are tamein. So we'll say again. What the Gemara is saying over here is that lemaisa, you can go ahead and accept the view. You can, you can accept the view that all the kelim in Yerushalayim are considered to be tar. But you can also accept the view that what that kelim found on the way down to the mikvah are going to be tamein. 
And that's not a contradiction in terms. Why is it Rabosai? Because Lemaisa, if you find him on the way down to the mikvah, that's a pretty good indication. That's what he calls Hochiach. That is pretty good circumstantial evidence that Lemaisa, this would, meaning I can hold of the cloud that Kalim in general are considered to be turning Yushalayim, but it does, I could still also hold that Kalim found on the way down to the mikvah will still be, will still be considered to name. Abishol, Hayakorin Osat Siporin. So we'll say, the Gemara just talking about over here that this, what, what the Mishnah called, what the Mishnah called this Meritza, um, this hammer. So different people called it different names. Abashal used to call it a Tsiporin. We'll say Tsiporin literally means like a nail. Because apparently, again, it used to have, it used to be like shaped like a, like a long fingernail and able to, uh, to dig up the earth. Mandamar Tsiporin, Shedom Tsiporin. So the Mandamar who called it a Tsiporin, because he said that the hammer itself resembled a nail. Mandamar Maritza. Others called it a Maritza. Then I will say Maritza literally means like a crusher. A hammer or a crusher. Why? Because you would use it to crush the stone in order to clear way for a grave. Kofitz. I will say, if you remember again, so the Mishnah spoke about this idea of the cleaver. And actually, the last case in the Mishnah was that if you find the cleaver tied to tied to a knife, then the cleaver has the same status of the knife. So the just points out over here, Tani, Hasakin Kishurala, Harihi Kimos, Harizu Kimosa. Just the point is, there's another Mishnah, and the other Mishnah reads the opposite way, that if you have a knife tied to the cleaver, then what? Then the knife has the status of the cleaver. So the Mishnah wanted to say that the cleaver, in our Mishnah said, the cleaver has the status of the knife. Another Mishnah says that the knife has the status of the cleaver. Okay, two different Mishnahis. Says the Mishnah, we will say another fascinating case. Parochas Shinitma Bavlatatuma. We will say Parochas is the curtain that, hang, that hung in the base of Mikdash. If you remember again, there are multiple curtains, but the simplest one to, to visualize is the curtain between the Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Right? Remember, there was a curtain that separated the Kodesh. So let, let's say that, let's say that, that mm-hmm. curtain, Shinitma Bevlad HaTumah, that became Tamarit of Vlad HaTumah. And I will say, what's Vlad HaTumah? Vlad HaTumah is Rabbinic Tumah. It's rabbinic, it literally means the offspring of Tumah. It's Rabbinic Tumah. And I will say, what's an example of Rabbinic Tumah? If you take a look at the Kabbin Aida, he says, Shenaga Bemashkin Tumayim. So we'll say, for example, let's say again, let's say again, you have um, liquid that came in contact with, uh, with the sheretz, with the sheretz. So midaraisa, the sheretz does not convey tumah to mashkin, but midrabanan it does. That's because, as the Karmana Eda points out, there is one case of tumas mashkin, which is where a zav or a zava touches a mashka. In that case, the liquid does become tummy just like the Zav and Zava. So in order to safeguard that principle, Chazal, 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 where goes there, general rabbinic tumma on any liquid that comes in contact with something tummy. So now let's say, again, the Sheretz touches a liquid. The liquid touches the Parochas. Liquid touches the Parochas. Now the Parochas is tummy with rabbinic tumma. So what do you do with it? It's amazing. So the Gemara says, So we go ahead and we, we, you have to now immerse the Parochas. So we take down the Parochas. We take down the Parochas. We'll see in Yuma, by the way, how exactly they did this process. They, we took down the parochas, and what? We immersed it in the mikvah. Now, there was a mikvah right inside of the base of Mikdash, in what was called the parva chamber. We'll see that in Yuma also. So they immersed it right in the mikvah inside the base of Mikdash. Umachnisin osamiyad. And immediately after immersing it, what do we do? We hang it right back up. Because we also remember, although under normal circumstances, when an item becomes tummy, a person becomes tummy, and you go to the mikvah, you have to wait until hair of Shemesh. You have to wait until that evening to become tame, tahar, excuse me. That doesn't apply in this case of rabbinic tumma by the base hamikdash. So we immerse it, hang it right back up. What happens if the what happens, however, if the parochas becomes tame with an avatuma? Let's say the parochas literally becomes somebody dies. 
somebody dies and they're, they're holding on to the parochas. So what happens in a case like that? We take it down and we take it outside of the base of So what this means into the courtyard of the base of Mikdash. Oh, and we and we we tovel it there. <laughs> we spread it out in the chel. Now I will say the chel is the area out right outside of the basement. Remember when we had a couple of days ago this thing called the sarug. The sarug was the, was this was this fence that surrounded it. So outside of the basement mikdash, there was like another courtyard. There was a courtyard in the basement mikdash complex that's out that's inside. And then when you actually exited the temple compound, there was another courtyard area. So they would hang out, they would, ha- they would hang the, they would hang the, or spread out the paroches in that area. Because in this case, because the paroches became exposed to an avatoma, it did not become tahor until that night. So they spread it out there in order to leave it outside of Islam until nightfall. In Haisa Chadasha, if it was a new paroches that nobody had ever seen before, what would they do? If it was a new parochas that nobody had ever seen before, then what would they do? They would spread it out on top of the itztava. So remember again, we had our itztava cases in, in Erevin. They used to have like rows of benches, roofed benches in the area around the base Hamikdash. So if it was a new parochas that nobody ever saw before, they spread it out on top of these roofs, these roofed benches, and people would be able to see it from all around Yerushalayim, in order that people should see the beautiful handiwork of the parochas. Rabbi Shimon Gamilam Rishum, Rabbi Shimon Askan, parochas, ovia tefach, ovia tefach, al shivim ushtayim nimim ne'ereges. The thickness of the parochas was a tefach, and it had to be made on 72 different looms. That's how large, 72 different looms, watch this. Every strand, every strand of material for the parochas was made of 24 smaller strands. Arka mem ama, its length was 40 amos. Virachba chaf, and its width was 20 amos. Omishmonim ushtayim rivo haisanasis. And you know how much the cost to make the parochas was? 820,000 gold pieces. That's how much it actually cost to make. So what, what that means is that's between materials and labor. That was the amount of money it took to produce the parochas. And watch this. And I will say they would make two new curtains each year. So, so just, just, just imagine the massive amount of wealth that there was obviously in the base of Mitish as well. So they, they made two new curtains each year. And I will say when they had to immerse the parochas, it was so heavy and so big that what? They needed 300 kohanim to participate, first of all, in the removal, in the immersion and the removal from the mikvah and the spreading out of the parochas. Amazing. Yeah, I guess it was enough. Well, 300 is a lot of people. So the Gemara says the following. So now the Gemara goes through, how do we know that each of the that each of the strings was made up of twenty four different strings. Ilu amar chot. We would have just used the word chot. Chot would mean one. Kafel shtaim would mean two. Shazor, which means twisted, would mean three. Mashezar means six. So also now that we have mashezar, and then what? Arba. So remember, there are four types of different fiber, right? There's tcheles, there's argaman, tolas, shani, in each meaning of, of each thread. So the Gemara says, therefore, we see mikan, so excuse me, arba mikan, ha esrin va arba. So we'll say that's where we get, that's ultimately where we get 
24. So you have your you have your four different items, again, twisted in six different ways. That gives us 24 different threads per strand. Tani Shloshimush time, others say no. In fact, there were 32 different strands within each thread of the, of the, of the, this is for the, this is for the, for the parochas, for the curtain. Ilu Amar Chut, if we would have just said Chut, Chut is just one. Kafu Shnaim, Shazur Arba, Mashazar Lishmona, Arba Mikan, and I'll say everybody's agreeing you have four different types of materials that are being woven into this. Hot loss and train that gives me 32. Tana, so I'll say all the just machlokas of how many individual. Um, I'm using the word strands, if that's the right word. How many individual strands were in each thread of the parochas? Others say arba mishmona. Others say it was forty-eight. Ilu amar chotif would have just said chot echot kafel shnaim kelia lishlosha shazur lishisha mashizar lishneim asar arba mikan. We know that there are four different types of thread. What do you get from here? Mikan ha ha arba im vitimlia. Fine. Kasav echad omer maaserokin. The kasav echad omer maasechoshev. Now, I'll say, interestingly enough, the Torah uses two different phrases. Torah calls it a maaserokin. Now, I'll say, and we'll see, rokin literally means embroiderer versus choshev, which means a designer. Now, I'll say, if you take a look at the Kabbalah Edith for just a moment, he says, maaserokin. So by the curtain, by the entranceway to the Beis Hamikdash, the Torah calls it. Torah calls it a maaserokim. Torah calls it the work of an embroiderer. But yet, by the curtain of the of the Kodesh Hakadoshim, it calls it a maasechoshev, the work of a designer. What's there between the work of a designer and the work of an embroiderer? So listen to this. Maaserokim, pirtsuf echad. The work of an embroiderer, so he's able to make an image on one side. Maasechoshev, but a designer shtepir tzufos. Kudbat Rabbosai make two designs, the same design on both sides. Rabbi Huda Rabbi Nechemia, Chad Amar Maaserokim Arimi Kan Arimi Kan. One said that an embroiderer is able to make, let's say, we'll say they were lions. So, so an embroiderer is able to make a lion on both sides. Because we'll say, obviously, you can imagine normally when you sew something, so what ends up happening? You make the image on one side, but on the other side again. Is in, you don't have that image. Either you have the threads coming out, or you have again a disheveled image. But again, maaserok means you're able to make the image on both sides. Maasechoshev arimikan vechalakmikan. So both sides again. The 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 embroiderer was so skilled that he was able to make the same image on both sides. The choshev was even more was even more skilled that what that on one side there could be an image and what and on the other side. Nothing, totally blank. On the other hand, the Gemara says, What's an embroiderer? No, the embroiderer is the one who can make it. Well, uh, uh, an, uh, um, an image on one side and blank on the other. The Arimikan Vineshamikan. And I will say, what was the Maasechoshev? What was the incredible work of the designer? He was able to make two different images. And I will say, that's how we paskin, by the way. We, the Ramam says in, in the Halachos of the Beis Hamikdash that the way the curtain was arranged in the Kodesh Shakadoshim was that there were different images on both sides. And I will say, so you'll say to yourself, well, that's easy. Because what do they do? They took two different tapestries and put it together. No, no, no. This was one act of weaving, one act of sewing. And amazingly enough, they were able to create two distinct images on both sides. Again, on one side there was a lion, on the other side there was an eagle. So remember again, what did the Gemara say? The Mishnah said that the parochas itself cost 820,000 gold pieces. Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Shmuel, Guzma. That's an exaggeration. It didn't cost, what it's saying is, it was very, very, very expensive. So Gemara says, Taman Taninan, Pamim Haya Aleha, Kishlosh Me'os 
Samar gives another example of other hyperbole. Samar says, for example, we learned elsewhere that sometimes there was up to 300 core of ash on the top of the Beis HaMikdash. Uh, no, excuse me, on the Mizbeach. So Samar says, there was never 300, 300 core of ash is an incredible amount of ash. There was never 300 core of ash on on the top of the Beis HaMikdash, uh, excuse me, on the top of the Mizbeach, Rabbi Yossi, Bar Rabbi Bo, and B'Shem Rabbi Shmuel Guzma. So also the Gemara is just pointing out that there are sometimes that, that the Gemara employs a little bit of hyperbole to make the point. So did the parochas literally cost 820,000 gold pieces? No. Was it very expensive? Absolutely yes. All right, the boss, we're going to stop over here. I'm going to change my mind. We're going to do sure tomorrow morning. We'll say again, Daf Yomi tomorrow morning is at 7.45. We're going to do the Daf Yomi again before, uh, before the Chumash, so 7.45 tomorrow, followed by the Chumash Mir Sashem at, um, at 8.25. And we'll obviously we'll do the last piece of the Gemara Mir Sashem by the Siyum by, by Shalashudis.